You're listening to The Togetherings, hosted by the Alaska Humanities Forum. The Togetherings are recorded conversations with Alaskans from all walks of life, sharing their perspectives on big questions that touch us all. Each series shares a common theme that is explored across episodes. Hello and welcome to The Gathering, hosted by the Alaska Humanities Forum. This is Simonetta and I'm co-hosting this episode with Rayette Sterling, representing Anchorage Public Library, our partner for this conversation series on the library as public comments. And Rayette is the manager of the Mountain View Library in Anchorage. Hi, Rayette. Hello. Thank you for having me. Before we start, we want to acknowledge that we are recording these conversations in Anchorage, Alaska on Denaina land. Um, so I'm hoping our conversation today really talks about that idea of libraries as the last public commons, a public space for people to engage with each other and ideas, and a place that is open for um, open dialogue and discussion to all of our public. And for that, we have two guests with us today who I'm going to allow to introduce themselves. We have um, Susan Elliott from the Listening Post and um, Bill Hall from Let's Talk Alaska. So we'll start with you, Susan. Thank you. Thank you. Your little introduction to us about public space is exactly what I believe. I have a colleague who always says it's the big everybody at the library. And it is one of the last places where that happens. I came to... Uh, think about this from two angles. Um, I, I actually am a librarian, was a librarian for 20 years, and I grew up in um, walking distance from the library. So I, I uh, really love to go there and meet different people and see different kinds of people. Um, and then I've been a volunteer for the last 11 years at the Listening Post. And the Listening Post uh, was uh, started in the transit center downtown. We did that for eight years. We had kind of a living room space. And we, had, we have about 30 active volunteers and another probably 30 occasionally volunteers. And we were kicked out of the transit center when the remodel. And so libraries invited us to, to uh, listen. So we listened at the Mountain View Library and at Lusac and at in the Palmer Library, as well as places like Brother Francis Shelter and the Animal Shelter and Assets all over town. So I, I was thinking about the uh, idea of the library as a conversation space. And in some ways, listening is, you could think of it as not a conversation, but it actually, it's, it's listening to a conversation somebody's having with themselves. Uh, my name is Bill Hall, and I uh, I am presently a member of the board of Alaska Common Ground. Uh, and Alaska Common Ground essentially was a sponsoring agency in the beginning for what we created called Let's Talk Alaska. Uh, and uh, my my intention with starting Let's Talk Alaska was from my work with the Kettering Foundation uh, and the uh, and their work with. Uh, uh, other other organizations to have uh, sponsored dialogues on democracy, and they provided training for people. And the we got a grant. Peg Tylston and I worked together, and we got a three-year grant to create what the what Kettering called a uh, uh, public policy institute. I think now they they've got a different name for it. 
but it was the idea of having uh, creating a place for dialogue and deliberation, uh, mainly deliberation. There's a difference, I think. Uh, dialogue and deliberation in 50 states, most of them were in universities. And, uh, it, and since I had pretty much freedom to do what I wanted to do, uh, starting off, I chose not to go with the university and, and ended up looking at the libraries as the place where we should have these conversations. So uh, using some of the Kettering, you know, they provided training, they provided information, they provided dialogue materials that we could use, and they still do that. Uh, so we started off in 2006, uh, a program we call Let's Talk Alaska, uh, which uh, we called uh, a library-based program in civic dialogue. Uh, in the beginning years, we had a little money, so we had money for travel. And uh, I, uh, we had about 20, I think 27 small group dialogues and communities across the state. Um, and what one interesting thing that I found was that... Uh, Getting the public involved to uh, to participate in discussions was always a difficulty here in Anchorage, but in places like Petersburg, Haines, Seldovia, well, not Seldovia, Soldotna, um, and Seward, and Homer, it wasn't that difficult. Uh, we 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 were doing what we called dialogues in democracy, and and uh, in particular, we were doing. Uh, in, in one year when there were quite a few uh, uh, referendums on the ballot and initiatives on the ballot in regard to oil tax legislation and, and other items, we, we, uh, we wrote uh, discussion uh, guides around those and we held dialogues on those and those were well attended, particularly in those rural communities. When we did it in the rural community, people showed up. They, there was a really good participation and there was usually pretty good uh, variety of people. But in Anchorage, it was always a challenge. So uh, uh, on those issues, not so much. Uh, on other issues that were more generally general, like like you know, what is what is democracy? What do we value about it? Why do we have it? Um, it was uh, it was more of a challenge, and I and it turned out that toward the end of me doing it, which was about two or three years ago, we had basically the same people showing up. So I'll conclude my introduction with uh, just one observation that I had, both uh, from my experience at Kettering. There's a national coalition for dialogue and deliberation. Uh, they have a website. They're very active nationally, and they have an active uh, what I, I know is I call a, web, a list serve, where people from all over the nation participate in sharing what they've learned and what they're doing in terms of uh, community dialogues and. And in that thing, going back to when we first started, uh, we people were expressing the concern, the disappointment that they could never get people to the dialogues who were of a conservative persuasion. Uh, they just didn't show up. They didn't want to. And I found that to be true here in Alaska. Uh, to try to get people together to talk about their differences was dif difficult because we had a hard time pulling people in who were willing to participate in those kind of discussions. So with that, I'll... I'll leave it for uh, Rayette or Susan to add what they have. It's, it's kind of, um, it is interesting because how do you have a conversation and, and really engage people with the idea of, of differences in community when one half of the table doesn't show up? And I'm not sure what the answer is to that. I'm not sure if it's because uh, 
folks are afraid that they won't be heard or if folks are um, maybe just not curious. I don't, I don't know. Intrigued lately, um, and I might participate. The, uh, they're doing that one small step program, which is, I guess, uh, public radio or public media and uh, StoryCorps. And they're, they're doing dialogues between people of different political persuasions. Um, we have found at the listening post where, again, we're just listening. It's not really a dialogue per se, but people will sometimes come and do a political rant with us. You know, we, we entertain anything that people want to say. But we have found that it, it sort of changes the tenor of the conversation if we say, what's your story in that? And that, that brings it to a different level. And then people are willing to talk about how they came to how they came. I signed up to participate in that uh, Alaska media uh, story uh, discussion. And the last email I got from them, they said they were still looking for somebody to pair off with me. So uh, I'm hoping that's going to happen because I, I wanted to be a participant because uh, in most of what we've done, and Rayette was very active at LUSAC and, and working with me. Uh, I facilitated the uh, the gatherings and uh, wasn't really able to participate. So I'm looking forward to doing that. I would say that that um, there to, to get some of what I understand out of the way up front. Uh, libraries are uh, create good spaces for people to come and talk because they're neutral ground. And, uh, and I found that all across the state, the places I went, uh, it, it was no. There was no problem with people being willing to come and participate, those who wanted to participate. So they are that they offer uh, and they offer nice facilities. And um, the, I was hoping to try to create a statewide program of library based dialogues. And I provided some training for people uh, in libraries and there was a very positive response. The problem was never enough resources. Uh, libraries are always underpaid and understaffed and, and to actually get, uh, find people with the extra time to try to organize and sustain a community-based dialogue program seemed to be uh, just difficult. I'm, I think if we would have had some grant money back then, we might've been able to get something off the ground. So it's interesting too. And what I appreciate, Bill, is that your recognition of the library as neutral space and. And um, that's part of why it's such a good public space. I mean, we have books and materials from um, every, you know, we have Bill O'Reilly's books, we have Hillary Clinton books, we have every, every political facet and analy analysis from both sides of um, conservative to libertarian to um, progressive to socialist and, um, and it, one of the things I find interesting is that each of those groups will find something wrong with the others, if that makes sense, right? People will say, well, you only have this. And we're like, no, we have, there's a, a, a t-shirt that librarians wear a lot that says, uh, we have something to offend everybody, which I think is probably true when people come with, with a lot of their own personal perspective. So what I appreciate about the dialogues and the listening is that you eliminate your, or you don't eliminate, you honor your perspective, but you also make room for those other perspectives. So I'd like to hear just a little bit about how 
how you work that into the work that you do? First of all, I, I tried to do dialogue, which um, I, I came to understand and define as uh, a place where people share their values, not so much take positions on public issues or public policy or share their ideologies. And, and, I, and I found that, that if you're looking for common ground, you need to be looking for the values underlying whatever issue you're trying to discuss. Right. So yeah. you're trying to penetrate into that. Uh, and that's one of the ways in which I felt I was able to do it. Uh, some of the dialogues that I did on the, on the uh, uh, initiatives in the, that were really quite divisive, particularly the, the, the one on uh, raising oil taxes, where people have differences of opinion. Um, uh, I wrote discussion guides where I tried to uh, get, uh, I'd go on the internet and get quotes from people who were on both sides of the issue and, and write and include those quotes and position statements into a, uh, a discussion guide or paper. And that helped me do that. As far as the listening post, um, you know, our whole reason for being is just to listen to whatever people want to tell us. And so, our, one of our cardinal rules is no judgment. And that even means no positive, no cheerleading. Oh, stop drinking. It takes some learning to do that. I mean, we do our volunteers do training every single month at our meeting. We practice listening and we practice just listening, which is all that we do. And, but it's very enlightening to hear people's views on things. And it's also very, um, it, it's a way to get rid of fear on both sides, I think. I, I actually happened to be reading uh, yesterday a library book uh, went with some of Wendell Berry's poems. And I, I found these two little stanzas that just said to me, this is kind of what the Listening Post does. He talks about going out on the trees and sitting still. And he says, then what is afraid of me comes and lives a while in my life. What it fears in me feeds me. And the fear of me feeds it. It sings and I hear it song. Then what I am afraid of comes. I live for a while in its sight. What I fear in it leaves it. And the fear of it leaves me. It sings and I hear its song. And I, I mean, I'd never seen that poem before, but it, listening post volunteers, I would say, are in general less fearful than the general public, only because we experience people who are not like ourselves and we are not afraid of them. And I think it's the same for them. I mean, they, they come into a space where there maybe are people that they haven't. I mean, a bunch of us look like grandmothers, so we're pretty <laughs> But uh, it, it is an amazing thing to just listen to somebody without waiting to see what you're going to say next. Or you know, we, do, we have a, a rule that ask the question that wants to be asked. We don't, we're not like therapists. We don't ask leading questions. You know, if some question comes into your mind, you don't ask it right then. You see if it really is something that that, that power of listening is pretty amazing. I like what you're saying, uh, Susan. I feel like listening and literally practice listening has a long-lasting impact on the wider social fabric. 
And um, I think that often in Western society, we're used to approach listening as, as a passive uh, thing when instead is active. And so I, I'm curious to hear what, what you think about listening in conversation, is conversation, is, if, it's some, if it's something that uh, feels as active, though you're not speaking, you're just listening, right? It, it is very active. Uh, not everybody believes it. Most, most people who come to the listening post get it. But there are people who say, well, what else are you doing besides listening? Because that's, that's not doing something. But actually, it is. Um, and it, and we, have, we have a saying in our training that when somebody comes in and tells you their stories, it is their story. And they're going to leave with their story. But you hold it between you while you're listening to it. And it's changed by being heard. And I think, you know, I think people do hear their own wisdom when they're given a chance to just talk and be listened to without people giving them advice or doing whatever else. And I, I do think you're right. It makes a change in the social fabric. I found that, uh, that uh, I, I differentiated between dialogue and deliberation in the sense that dialogue is what I call the sharing of needs and values so you could build trusting relationships and create the awareness of a common interest. Whereas deliberation is you use a sense of common interests or purpose and you transform that into a cause uh, through information informed analysis and choice. So one is sort of focused on, I call that a construct for democratic action. So one precedes the other and then, and then from deliberation then you can identify where do you go for action for change. But getting back to the space in the libraries that I think is important is that the space doesn't mean anything without people. And uh, some of the people you need that are critically important is the stuff that Susan has done, and that's trained facilitators. Um, people who have uh, some experience and, and have learned uh, different processes for facilitating and, uh, and guiding the conversations. So, uh, and then again, the other people that are needed to come to that space in the libraries are the people who want to talk to one another. And that's a challenge to find them. I, I, think, I think it's the issue. You need, to, you need to find out what people want to talk about and then try to get something, uh, put something together for them. But that takes a lot of time and effort. I didn't always have a lot of, a lot of that to use. I'm glad you mentioned the word trust because I think that is one of the big things here. I believe that libraries are trusted spaces. I think lots of people feel good coming into libraries. And we certainly at the listening post have learned that people have to gain trust in us. There will be people who walk by us for months and then suddenly they'll come over and talk. You know, they just have gotten seeing us there and they've come to watch other people talking to us. And, you know, you just that that sense of trust is a big thing, and I, and I think it's it's the thing that's missing between all of us in our society right now. We don't trust that other guy. You know, how yeah, that's I, 
I think that's really true too. And that's part of what, that is part of what libraries try to do is build that sense of trust and that sense of being neutral. And we provide quality information. And that's the other important piece too, is the idea that people trust us to provide quality information and to, to help filter through some of the noise. Um, and to do that without judgment or without imposing a perspective on someone, right? My job is to help people be their best selves and figure out what question they need to answer today in this moment um, that helps them be better or do whatever it is they need to do. Um, and I think that's what, that is one of the things libraries do well. Um, and in service of that, we see people from uh, different perspectives, different walks of life every day. So the questions and conversations can change from one minute to the next, depending on who you're working with or who's, who's in front of you. I also really like that, um, Susan and Bill, you come from different ends of the same kind of, it's the same concept, but just a different place where it's like that listening place, like, okay, I'm hearing you. Now let's talk about this and let's talk, find the common ground here, which is a really, uh, it's really interesting. And it's a very active, very um, um, almost community building kind of thing because you're building trust in each other and trust to have these conversations so that you can um, engage with people in a broader, more holistic way, I think. Yeah, I, I, I discovered a number of things after having attended multiple training sessions at Kettering and, and training in other areas from other places where I on, on facilitation. And uh, it came to me one time on an airplane that, that, uh, that really what we're trying to do with this facilitation is to create social intimacy. And in that sense, it means that people are willing to lower their guards just enough to maybe be hurt a little bit, but to share what they really care about and are honest about. And interestingly, I found that when you use the elements that are necessary for a group to really work together, which starts out with ground rules, the ground rules, I think, really establish the, uh, the background against which you can start creating that intimacy early on. And uh, in a, you know, sometimes in an hour, you'll have people who didn't know one another in the beginning who, after the event is over, are going to spend time standing around and talking to one another because it's, they've, they've learned something. So, so I think that's, uh, in terms of process and engaging people, I think that's really uh, what this is all about. And creating trust in a polarized society is really an important thing. Let me tell you the listening books, ground rules, and then I'd be interested in hearing your ground rules for your meeting. Our ground rules are, Our ground rules are um, no judgment, uh, no advice, let go of outcome, and no cheerleading, which is another form of no judgment. Those are, that's it. Well, I, I, over the years, I kept changing the ground rules I had, and I don't know if I remember them all. I know Rayette knows some of them, so she can fill it in, but uh, it's, uh, you know, make space for other people to talk. Uh, don't dominate. Uh, be respectful. Um, well, Rayette, do you, do you remember any, any more of them than that? Uh, those are the, those are the big, oh, speak for yourself, right? Every opinion yeah. is yours. You yeah. don't, don't imply other opinions. Uh, listen to be understood. Um, the other one that comes to mind is to mute your cell phone, which yeah. I think is something we all need to yeah. remember to be 
in a space that with actual the people we're in the space with as opposed to all the distractions that tend to, to get yeah. in the way. Yeah, I think uh, there's no magic to those ground rules. Um, what Susan, what you talked about is works well. And, and I don't think you have to be rigid about what ground rules you try to use and you can distill them down. Um, and of course, usually we would read the ground rules when I was facilitating and then I'd ask anybody, do you want to add something or delete something or talk about it? And, and so people had a little buy-in with it. But I think the ground rules really created that, created that safe space that we're hoping to do in the library. Bill, before you mentioned that in the past, uh, you noticed that there were some difficulties in engaging people in conversation, in, like inviting people to actually participate in the dialogical process. And so I wonder if you have any ideas why, why do you think uh, it's so hard for people to um, start engaging with that process, with that work? Before you mentioned, like I thought it was really interesting that you mentioned that in the past with your work, you noticed that um, people have engaged in conversation um, more likely in rural Alaska, for instance, and as opposed Anchorage. And so I was wondering if you have some ideas or like uh, thoughts about what is like that element or a series of obstacles or X, Y, and Z that kind of prevent people to maybe accept that invitation to engage in a participatory dialogue, et cetera. Well, I think the smaller communities, and I'm talking more about first-class cities, which are maybe 2,500 to 5,000 people, uh, looking at Petersburg, Haines, Seward, Cordova, Homer. Uh, I used to come away from those places saying, well, democracy is alive and well here because those communities have a whole sense of part. Of, some of them are isolated that you can't get in with other than road or by road or airplane. And they have a long history of, of uh, helping one another. So I, I think, and fighting with one another during the winter time, when there was lots of time, uh, people on their hands, they'd, there'd usually be some sort of a local controversy that people would just start battling. Sometimes it could get quite destructive, but which is really where a good, program and dialogue would be really helpful. Um, I didn't find that sense of commitment to democracy or participation in democracy very widespread in Anchorage. There are people who have it and participate and work at it, but, but it's not, uh, in terms of the people's everyday lives, um, it's not something that they have time to really spend any to spend on on that sort of thing. Uh, I don't know, Rayette, Susan, do you have any thoughts? Well, I I don't have any experience in rural Alaska. I mean, doing listening anyway. But um, I think people people do. I mean, we never had any trouble having people come to us. And maybe it's because it's a big city, and you, you know, people don't necessarily aren't connected to each other very well. They don't have somebody to listen to. Them. Whereas in a smaller place, maybe people do, and they're just more easy to do. It's kind of interesting too, because I come back to that idea of um, community and Anchorage is a big city with lots of pockets of different communities. So I think people are um, 
whether by geographics or by choice, I think I think it's easier to be more isolated sometimes in a big city, which is why that sort of one-on-one individual listening may work really well because people do feel disconnected from their community. And, you know, that that's just a guess on my part. And it's, it's part of the way I see my library, the Mountain View branch, is that we are a member of the community and we try to actively engage our community and provide resources and entertainment and tools, programs that people in this community like or that meet their needs. And part of part of that, I think, helps to, to build that trust so that people feel that you're kind of in it with them. Sometimes I think in larger cities, folks feel more isolated and aren't quite as willing to, to step out of out of their community and their comfort zone. They're just not, maybe not quite as trusting as in a smaller rural environment. Actually, I listened at Mountain Library for a year uh, every week. And I noticed the difference between Lusac and Mountain View, just because already Mountain View is a community. And that's very clear. We, we listen just out in the hallway there. And, you know, people, people accept you as part of the community quite immediately. I mean, I have some raspberry bushes that I've planted out here that were given to me by somebody who came to be listened to at Mountain View. And we just, we just were very accepting. People came and sat down and talked about it. Children came in, you know, everybody came. It's a little, you know, it's a little more, not suspicious, but, you know, we're right, in, as you come in the door at Lusak, we were able to listen. We have missed listening and I should mention that we are listening online and have been since last May ago. So we listen on Wednesday if anybody wants to call in and say hello. But we, have, again, we have not been able to get people to come and do that. And I understand that because I don't even really like listening online that well. But um, I did really notice the difference that Mountain View is already a it's a little more hesitant. Than that. It's interesting that uh, when we were first getting started in 2006, uh, um, uh, we we held a, a number of dialogues at, at uh, Mountain View Library. Acoustics are terrible, but people enjoyed going there. And the first one we had that really had really a lot of attendance, and we held it twice, was uh, a dialogue about the Occupy movement, what is it? And I'm not sure that uh, you, you remember what Occupy was about, but it was, uh, it was a uh, social movement that questioned, that focused on the, the abuses and the, uh, uh, the problems with the inequality. So, it, and it was, you know, we, we, we had people really interested in participating and it was really a successful, successful event, actually a couple of events. So, uh, uh, and I think, you know, we, I know we look at the library's purpose and some of the mission statement is connecting people and the vision of Anchorage is a connected community um, and create opportunities for conversations and civic pride. And, and, you saw, and, and after I did a lot of these things and I was saying, well, what's important for community? And often using democracy as a, as a not exactly a synonym for community, but as a, something that that we hope in, in our nation that community is 
democratically based, you start thinking about, well, what's the problem? We're talking about human communication here and humans being able to talk together. Um, I did a series of dialogues on, on democracy, what is it, using essays written by a number of different prominent uh, philosophers and activists, one of whom was John Dewey. I, I really was a philosopher years and years ago in, in education and in, and in democracy. And, and he really believed that if it, democracy would work really well if people were just educated and if they engaged in dialogues with one another so that they were able to build community, uh, a sense of community. And, and that got me to thinking about the concept of, of the social construction of knowledge, where people coming together and talking about things of interest to them uh, end up out of the different meanings of their thinking interacting with one another actually start creating something that's new and brings them together. Uh, the philosopher David Bohm said that, uh, uh, talking about dialogue, he said, uh, I'm, he's saying society is based on shared meanings, which constitute the culture. If we don't share coherent meaning, we do not make a society. And uh, that gets a little bit you know, that's, that's not something you talk about people up front with when you're talking about community space and everything. But I really think it, it gets to the, to the place where, um, uh, where you're really saying, this is, this is what we want to use this space for. This is, hope, this is the outcomes. And, and in recent years, looking at what's happening to our democracy, it's, it's really frightening. I'm reading the book right now, uh, by Ezra Klein on uh, why we're polarized, and uh, and I've read books on democracy and change and and and, uh, and the why the death of democracies and and the different faction. The, it's all about human relationships. It's all about human relationships, and that we we can't find that common ground that's important for democracy. What that, what that makes me think of is. We can't find that common ground because we don't respect the person in front of us. We think other people need to be fixed. They don't need to be fixed. They're fine. They're whole and entire yeah. philosophies. I mean, I've listened to people with schizophrenia who have a fascinating cosmology. You know, it's not my cosmology, but it makes internal sense. You know? But we are unable to the person in front of us and just take them in. Yeah. Another quote that I really liked was from the poet T.S. Eliot, and uh, it's just two sentences. This is, where is the wisdom we have lost in knowledge? Where is the knowledge we have lost in information? And I think that really points out that information is not knowledge. People make it into knowledge by, by discussing it and seeing what meaning it provides in their lives and in their community. So, and that's in the, in the libraries are beautiful places because they give you space to have those discussions and they provide the information you need. I think one of the things we've seen in libraries in recent years is, uh, is uh, the clientele. A lot of the people that come to libraries are sometimes homeless people and people that don't really have a lot of, they're not wealthy, they don't have a lot of research, resources. I think uh, at some point was within the last several years, the libraries hired sociologists to work there. 
Uh, is that true, we, we do have a couple of social workers, our um, community resource coordinators, who help connect um, people to resources and have training in social work. Um, and it, it's interesting that, that you say that, Bill, because that idea of, uh, of conversation, and I think about this too, sometimes the conversation is between you and what you're reading. Sometimes the conversation is, I'm going to look at this author and think about that. And, you know, what is that? What does that inspire me to think about? Or what do I need to learn more about? What do I disagree with? Right. So those conversation, I, conversation is kind of an, an interesting word that can be more broadly interpreted. Right. It can be that that internal conversation with an author, with an idea, or even that internal conversation when you walk through the door and see people who look nothing like you or people who maybe um, are looking a little rough, um, but they're sitting at a computer or they're grabbing a book or they're, you know, they're doing the same things that you do in your, your life. And it, it becomes less scary because you can see them as people. And I think that, that, that really is one of the, one of the reasons we need this places that are a public commons that welcome everybody. Cause there's that, that milieu, you know, that exchange of ideas and, and just, um, to be able to acknowledge and recognize someone else's humanity. I think it's critical to, to democracy and just to being decent human beings again and being less polarized and creating the world that we want to live in and the place that we say we are, right? Because we, we all have ideas of what it means to be a good person and have a, a thriving city that that's, um, serves the needs of its citizens. So, you know, thinking about that um, in a place where you can engage with the public and, and see more people, I think is really critical to our success as, um, as a community, as a city and as a country. I think our libraries are doing a very great job of being a welcoming space for people. I've watched how they operate. I've watched how even the security operates and it's very human. Thank you. They're not unhappy to see people coming. Yeah, I think a good word describes libraries are they're, they are non-threatening. Uh, people are kind, they're helpful. Um, so they give the human component to that space, that safe space. They, you know, if they weren't there, it would, the, the, the safe space really wouldn't be there. It'd just be another empty room. So that, it, that's really important. I'd add one more word, non-judgmental. I, I think if there's a problem today with libraries, it's that enough people don't go to them. Well, that's pretty poignant. <laughs> yeah. The uh, you know the goal of trying to to bring people together so they can strengthen and build community is that's part of the library mission statement. How do we build community, and how do we bring people together? And, and looking at all of that. In thinking about it over the period of time that I was doing this, uh, I read a lot of books on what's happening in American democracy and you know why are we the way we are, and uh, and part of the the problem is uh, that people uh, are really motivated to act by their membership in a group, their sense of group identity which often overrides even their values. They will ignore some of their values to make sure that they, they're in good, a good state with the group. Uh, and, and, and the groups have become more polarized from one of the Democratic Party, Republican Party are more polarized. So 
they're they're not working. They're not compromising much. They're, they're they've evolved into competitive adversarial organizations. So, so the question is, can we do anything about that by trying to bring people together and and see the other person and learn from the other person and find common ground? Uh, is that enough maybe to override some of this, what we call identity politics or some of this stuff that's going on? I don't know. Again, it's hard to, it's hard to get people that have really intense ideologies to, to participate in some of these discussions. Well, that's I, I, I don't want to leave this on a downer note. No, no, that's, it's interesting. <laughs> I mostly find myself being in conversation with people that are most likely aligned with my vision and my ideology. I think it's a fairly common thing. You know, we, we surround ourselves with people in our same milieu or, you know, and similar uh, ideology. And so since like the point of having a positive dialogical exchange is to bring together people that come from different ideologies, from different life experiences, uh, it's kind of like, the, one of the, the main goals I and mean, purposes, I, and but it's really hard, in fact, to see to see it happen in practice in real life. And so I was just like, um, so curious to hear what, what what happens and what could happen within the public space, you know, and what can be done to invite the people and encourage that, um, or perhaps quote unquote force that <laughs> dialogue uh, or that exchange. Yeah. You know, one of the things that's interesting is that, um, you know, people ask us reference questions or to recommend books or, or things like that. And as soon as, you know, we start to develop that relationship. Um, but I learned so much from folks who don't think like me and don't like the same things that I like. And when I start to engage in that conversation, they assume that I like all of those things and that I have, you know, what I mean, because because that that common bond, they're like, oh, OK. So I think in that sort of listening learning space too, there's always so much more to learn about the world and, and I can only see through my eyes and to be able to have that little glimpse in what someone sees through their eyes, it's really, um, it's really powerful and it, it keeps me learning and engages my brain and I think it just um, makes me a better person. And I don't know if you've experienced that too, Susan, where just listening to people opens you up to so much more than you ever imagined. Oh, absolutely. And I was going to say, even on a more positive, I think the libraries are doing their part by making a, a welcoming space where everybody can come and be who they are. And, you know, everybody needs, as you know, Bill, more listening skills. But I, I guess I would just argue for that, that, just that idea of just listening, you know, and trying to, to find that person in front of you, whether they're in a grocery store line or wherever, that you can just, you know, be open to what they have to say in that moment. I mean, we, we even learn not to ask questions from the last time, you know, because you want to just let that person speak about what they'd like to speak about right now. Just that, that willingness to step back a little and be willing to just be present to whatever to whatever wanting to do in that moment. Exactly. Uh, yeah, years ago, I, I attended a workshop on compassionate listening in Seattle. They're still going. It's a small group of people who, who have workshops on how to listen. And 
And I can still remember uh, we paired off one-on-one and uh, the first exercise was to, and these were, we were all strangers. First exercise was to look at the other person, look into their eyes silently and sit there for 30 seconds or a minute and a half or whatever. And boy, was that uncomfortable. But by the end of it, it was, it was, you know, you just, you didn't say a word, but at the end of it, you, you felt something very positive. It was really interesting. It actually is quite addictive. Yeah. All of us who, who listen, miss listening to strangers. Yeah. There, towards the end of when I was doing the dialogues, I, I came up with, with, uh, and I, this wasn't anything unique. I'm sure other people have done it, but it was a one-on-one uh, exercise in listening in which uh, the two people would sit together and uh, there was a topic, overall topic that was being discussed. And, and the goal was to find out what are your values that you have relating to this topic. And, and, to, and, to, and so two people pair off and, and, and one person talks for three minutes and the other listens without interrupting and, and vice versa, and you, you keep going back and forth. And by the end of it, you, you, you well, as it goes, you end up finding, well, you do have common values. So I did this one time at the Alaska uh, um, Center for the Performing Arts, where there was, a, there was a group that was gathered together before a performance. And, and so we, we did this and my wife was with me and she ended up pairing off with this other gentleman. Actually, he sort of sought her out and she's liberal. He watched Fox News and they started and they had this discussion using this methodology. And and by the end of it, uh, when she got finished talking, he, he looked at her and says, well, you're a Republican. <laughs> she said, no. <laughs> so somehow there was some 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 connections uh, a discovery you know, it was really quite remarkable in, in essence you're talking about the exact same exercise we do at every one of our meetings yeah I mean, one person talks for five minutes another two people typically just listen and then you take and we start with a question but everybody takes that question in a different direction you know it doesn't it I mean the question doesn't matter yeah yeah it's the listening and speaking and being listened to. And you get to that place where you're talking about, oh, you're just like me. <laughs> yeah. I would like to share one thing that, that uh, I think might be uh, a friendly criticism of libraries, and that is both on a national level, or the, I forget what the name of the National Library Association is, but Alaska Library, uh, association. I've been to some of their conferences and I've taught some programs in facilitation. And I, I think it's difficult to change your perspective on the library as a place where people make a lot of noise versus a place where they're really quiet. And, and so you're trying to put together two different things. And, and, and I think sometimes uh, some, some librarians are so uh, skilled in being a librarian that they don't see that other side and how to do it or, or the importance of doing it and creating the space versus uh, on one thing, but also trying to reach out. Uh, I think we're doing a lot better now than we used to, but, but really 
if you look at the mission of the library, just like this uh, excerpt I've got from the uh, the plan that was done back in 2018 for the for the, for Anchorage Library, is that creating community. And uh, I'm not sure if we figured out how to do that. Well, you can't create community without being in a community. So you have to be present. I think that is the key. Be present, show up for people, show up for people as your whole self and allow them to see all of that and allow yourself to see someone as a whole person. So yeah, yeah. have to be in community to build community. Yeah. We're getting close to the end of this episode. Um, it's been great having you here. So thank you so much. Um, we usually close uh, by asking our guests What's one question you'd like to leave our listeners with? I would say my question would be, have you really listened to someone today? Well, I, uh, I would have to go along with that. And it has to do with being kind, being compassionate, being open, being loving, all of those things. And, and uh, without having a safe space, it's hard to do that. So I think libraries can help help nurture that or make it possible for people to make a beginning to do that. But you, you're absolutely right. It's, it's how do I see the humanity in somebody else? 